Our text today will be verse number 42, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Last Sunday, I suggested that if I were to ask you, is Sunday worship important, the answer would be yes. However, if I were to step, take a step further and ask, is Sunday worship a priority, the answer might be quite different. So we looked at why do we do what we do when we meet together on Sundays. I say that we've come together to worship God. Um, but why do we do the things that we do in the context of worship? In a word, liturgy. I suggested last week that what we do on Sundays should be seen as the week to come in microcosm. That is, we are here for about an hour, an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, but what we do here is in fact what we will be doing, or what we should be doing the rest of the week, um, as we walk through the world. Our practices shape our behavior, our actions, through the week, or through the coming week. And just to review quickly, why is it that we do what we do on Sundays? Um, The first words we hear as we begin our worship is, because the Lord is my salvation, someone sings to us. Today it was Dan. And then we respond, I will not fear. We basically say, I will obey the most repeated command in scripture to not be afraid. We sing, I will not fear, not once, not twice, but three times. And then at the end, Dan sings to us, for I am with you. And we respond, hallelujah, praise the Lord. This is how our worship begins. A pronouncement is made, we've come together to worship God. It's a a simple statement of intent and purpose. This is what we are doing. And then we sing hymns. And these hymns tell us about God. They tell us about the lives that we live, what the Lord Jesus has done for us. As I mentioned last week, Augustine is famously known to have said, he who sings prays twice. And by this he meant that singing adds to our praise and worship of God, that our voices are gifts with which we can make music to the Lord. Singing is an important part of liturgy. Then we hear the word of God being read, the voice of God speaking to us as someone reads from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and someone reads from the New Covenant, the New Testament. So I mentioned last week, imagine that you were illiterate, that you could not read, that the only time you would be able to hear scripture is in the context of worship. I think it would take on a very different dimension. Um, It would become precious to us that those words, as the case today today as Gia read to us from Jeremiah 14, as Zib read to us from Matthew 14, we would remember those words a lot better than I think that we do. Then we confess our sins and we hear the promise of forgiveness. We will sin in the coming days, either knowingly or sometimes ignorantly. We must acknowledge that we are sinners that we have sinned, and it is not a small thing. But we must not allow this truth to burden us, to weigh us down to the point that we can't do anything. We must embrace the reality that God, through his Son, has forgiven us, that Jesus has paid for our sins on the cross. Then we speak, of things we are, we speak publicly of things we are thankful for. 
remembering that God is the source of all things. We speak of things we would like remembered in prayer, the needs and burdens, our own and those of others. And again, we remember that God is the source, and this is something that we carry with us through the week. Lonnie sends us out a prayer list that we can pray for one another, that we can give thanks for what God is doing and has done. And then we give. This is a part of our worship. We acknowledge that everything we have comes from God, and so now we return to it. But this practice of giving is to prepare us for the practice of giving in the next six days. That as we are open-handed, as we give generously, hopefully to God, we will do so to those who are in need. We learn to give here so that we can give when we leave this place. Then we have communion, as we've just done. We remember, this is an important part of our liturgy, memory, remembering what Jesus has done. But more than that, we eat and drink. It's a small amount that we eat, a small amount that we drink. But through the rest of the week, we're going to eat and drink. And we need to remember what Jesus has done. And as Paul put it, that whatever we do, we should do it to the glory of God. Then we come to the sermon where we are right now, which seeks to inform us, to instruct us, to correct us, It provides, hopefully, food for meditation for the coming week. Um, Then we come to the doxology. This is to mark our life in the coming days as we praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then we hear the benediction. Something that is sprinkled throughout this liturgy is prayer. As I pray, you join with me in the opening prayer. We do have the prayer of confession. We have the prayer after we have spoken of things we are thankful for or needs. Prayer after communion and finally the closing prayer. And while I'm the one praying, you hopefully all are joining with me so that this should remind me in the coming days, even if I'm praying alone, I trust that you are praying with me, that I am praying with you uh, as you pray in the coming days. Now, what I'd like to do today, having reviewed that, is to look at a series of contrasts in the light of what we do, what we do. Um, Because I think we tend to fall on one side or the other, and the reality is, I think oftentimes we make a mistake in this particular matter. The first one I'll spend a lot more time on, and then there will be three more that come near the end. The first contrast is worldview versus liturgy. Last week I suggested that liturgy sets for us the practices which govern our living. Liturgy provides lenses through which we see the world. I said that liturgy is in fact the worldview revealed in practices. Now, I hope I can explain this clearly. But worldview is in fact primarily theoretical or abstract. It's a set of assumptions that we hold about the basic makeup of the world. It is the world, if you wish, in miniature model that we hold in our head so that we can make sense of things. We all have a worldview, whether we realize it or not. But I would suggest to you that there is a problem with worldview thinking because it tends to focus on ideas and beliefs when in reality we are much more affected than we realize by practices. 
And so, if we focus on worldview versus uh, practices or liturgy, um, it affects the way we view things. Consider temptation, and I mentioned this last Sunday. This is from James Smith. Evangelicalism tends to miss the fact that the great tempter of our age is Walmart. The tempter does not roam about as a horrifying monster, but as an angel of light who spends most of his time at the mall. And as we saw, the mall is not a religious, or it is a religious site, not because it is theological, but because it is liturgical. It affects our practices. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or its messages, but in its rituals, in its practices. The mall doesn't care what you think. It is very much interested in what you love. Our habits are shaped by our practices. And we need to recognize as modern people who tend to see ourselves as, as really thinking machines, that we, that we are so far advanced over people that came before us. So we have all of these books, all these ideas, podcasts at our fingertips, that we're just filled with ideas. And we forget, we fail to realize that we are more shaped by our practices and our habits than by anything else. Also, if we focus on worldview versus liturgy, it affects our view of discipleship. The fundamental question of Christian discipleship that we hear from Jesus in John 1 is, what do you want? What do you want? Jesus called his disciples, and he doesn't ask them, what do you know? He doesn't ask, what do you believe? He asks them, what do you want? Will you come and follow me? And they do. What we want, our yearnings, our longings, our desires are at the core of who we are as people. But if we focus on worldview more than on liturgy, we will miss that. We will see ourselves primarily, as I've mentioned in another series, as brains on sticks. That our, if you could draw us as we imagine ourselves to be, our heads would be huge and our bodies would be rather small. That the bodies are just a vehicle to carry around uh, these enormous brains. And so when it comes to discipleship, it's all a matter of feeding the brain. Information. Information. And the sermon can be seen as that as well. Damon is here to teach us, to give us information, and in a sense to feed our brains. The reality is, the call to follow Jesus is a command involving our loves, our yearnings, our affections, our desires. He calls us to want what God wants. To desire what God desires. To hunger and thirst after God. And to crave, I think that's the right word, to crave a world in which he is all in all. In scripture this is known as the kingdom of God. Jesus as the one who calls us and who disciples us does not just inform our intellects, but rather he seeks to reshape our loves and our affections. But does this sound right to you? Don't we normally think of discipleship? I've even heard the expression, yes, uh, discipleship classes. You know, that we go there and there we are given a certain amount of information. And so when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, do we not see it as merely a matter of acquiring information? Let's go back to the matter of worldview. A, question, a Christian worldview is identified primarily as a set of doctrines a system of beliefs. One of the consequences is we tend to not have a very holistic view of what it means to be a human being. 
The Christian faith is reduced to ideas, principles, propositions, or claims. On the other hand, because this is a contrast, liturgy points to practices. Liturgies make us certain kinds of people. Liturgies prepare us to approach the world in a particular way, to value certain things, to aim for certain goals, to pursue certain dreams, to work together on certain projects. One of the important aspects of liturgy that I think we really shun and we really look down on is repetition. Um, Yeah, we like something new. We like something that is innovative. And here, uh, I'll come to this in a minute, but the, the, the liturgy of the mall, you know, have you ever noticed that you buy something and you really, really like it? I mean, either it fits well or it works well or whatever. And so six months later, a year later, you go back to buy another one and they don't make it anymore. They make something new. And the thing that you liked is now gone. And that type of thinking has come into the church with regard to liturgies. We, we sing the same hymns. Um, we follow the same pattern in our worship. Repetition, I think, has become a dirty word among God's people. But the reality is, it is repetition that helps us develop habits. Repetition. For many of us, this is, has a negative connotation because of the idea of vain repetition that we hear Jesus speaking of in Matthew 6. If you think that you worship God in order to show him how much you love him, you might feel hypocritical if you keep saying the same thing over and over again, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again. Um, those of you who are married, you know, we hear different voices that are telling us that you need to change things up. You need to keep it fresh. The idea that every day you would tell your wife the same thing or your husband the same thing, it's like, well, that, that's not going to keep the romance alive. But the reality is we are to repeat ourselves. We are to have habits. And I think we are to tell one another that we love each other. But again, because of the mall, this doesn't seem authentic. This isn't new. This is like the same old, same old, and, and there's something that's just missing. If you think of worship as an expression of who you are, rather than a, a response to who God is, then, yeah, repetition will, you'll think of it in a much different way. Our worship is a reception of God's reshaping our love. And so repetition is not insincere. It's like, man, you're just doing the same thing over and over again. It is, in fact, submitting. It is submitting to God. God has called us and we respond in the same way. By the way, God made us as creatures of habit. Have you ever thought of that? How we go to sleep at night and we wake up in the morning some of us are morning people, others are not. Uh, we eat at certain times of the day. We have patterns. We are creatures of habit. This is how God has made us. Um, I think liturgy fits into that, and we need to recognize that. 
this brings up at least two critical issues when you look at worldview versus liturgy. And that is, which comes first? Which comes first? Liturgy or worldview? Beliefs or practices? Again, to quote from James Smith, before we articulate a worldview, we worship. Before we put into words the matter of knowledge, we pray for God's healing and illumination. Before we theorize the nature of God, we sing his praises. Before we express moral principles, we receive forgiveness. Before we think, we pray. That's the kind of creatures we are, first and foremost. We are loving creatures. We are desiring creatures, affective, liturgical creatures who for the most part do not inhabit the world as thinkers or cognitive machines. That's how we tend to think of ourselves, but I don't think that's who we are. So I would propose to you that liturgy, what we do here Sunday, comes before the rest of the week. This is the first day of the week. And what we do here prepares us, it primes us for what is going to come in the next six days. So liturgy, I would say, comes before worldview. Practices before assumptions. This leads to the second critical issue, and what happens if our liturgy, the liturgy of Christian worship, takes on the same practices of the mall, for example, but liturgies of the world? I've mentioned it last Sunday, and I have before, that God meets us where we are, creatures of habit who are shaped by practices, a part of a community of practice. But we might be expecting something spectacular. Uh, someone was telling me um, that for many churches now, one of the big items on their budget is a fog machine. That they want a fog machine to have fog come across the stage as there's either singing or the preaching. Um, yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's just... Where do we get that from? I'm... As we read through scripture, I'm pretty sure you won't find that anywhere in scripture. But we want somehow something extraordinary. And the reality is God shows up in the ordinary. As Ziv reads to us, as she's wrestling with Jacob. Okay? As Gia reads to us from back there, as Tom plays for us, as we sing. And all that we do, these are ordinary things. This is life. And this is where our worship is to be. But again, if we buy into the liturgies of the world, yeah, that's just not going to cut it. We need something snappy. We need something to get people's attention and keep them interested. Um, otherwise, it just all seems so yesterday. We want something new. We should ask ourselves, what would the church's practices look like if they were going to form us into the kind of people who desire something entirely different, who desire the kingdom of God, who mean what they say when they pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We need to realize that being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into your head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Rather, it is a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly who loves God and neighbor, who is oriented to the world or to the word by the primacy of that love. It's not primarily a matter of beliefs. 
And for those of us who were raised in church, we know, we know doctrine, we know beliefs, we know the principles, we know scripture. But the reality is, church is to be a priority, our worship, because this is where we learn by repetition the practices that shape us into the people Jesus calls us to be. There's a powerful statement from C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. The joys of heaven are, for most of us in our present condition, an acquired taste. In other words, if somehow we went into the presence of God right now, if we went to heaven right now, yeah, we would be uncomfortable. Yeah, we've not acquired the taste for the things of God. We know the things of God, or we imagine that we do, but we do not love the things of God by our practices. I think we, do, we define ourselves as believers more than doers. Um, a number of years ago, about a decade ago, Guy and I were in Bali for a conference, and a young scholar there gave a paper on the mega churches of Jakarta. I was shocked. There are churches in Jakarta that have over 10,000 people attending every Sunday. Who knew? So I went to talk to him, and I talked to him afterwards, and it came out that I, I'm a Christian. And his response was, wow, I, I've never met a practitioner before. Practitioner. I just, not a word I think I would normally use to describe myself, but not a bad word at all. I think we would rather say believer. I believe in my heart, in my head. I know these things to be true. He saw me as a practitioner, by God's grace, someone who puts these things into practice. Okay. If we accept that liturgy comes before worldview... There are at least three more contrasts that we need to consider in the context of liturgy. And in doing so, I want to make it clear, I'm not pointing at other churches, I'm not hinting or implying about other churches. We're talking about us here at the church on Melrose. My intent is for us to understand why we do what we do each and every Sunday here at the church on Melrose. The first contrast is passivity versus service. When we come together to worship, we might imagine that we have two choices, either to be passive or to be servants, people who serve. If we imagine it is to be passive, then being here on Sunday is not really a priority. On the other hand, if we believe that we come together to worship God, to prepare ourselves for the week to come, to practice in microcosm what we are to do, to serve, then public worship becomes a priority. In the same way that we learn to listen for the voice of God in Scripture, to confess our sins and listen for his forgiveness, to give thanks for what God has done in our lives and the lives of others, to present needs before God, to be open-handed in our giving, to eat and drink to the glory of God, these and more. In the same way, I think we are to learn, we are to learn and be reminded of the call to serve. I've been thinking this past week, and even brought it up with my wife, why is it that church meetings are called services? Doesn't that imply somewhere the word serve is somehow involved there? In our, in our public worship, in our worship service, there are limited opportunities for service. Singing the open responsive song, Dan did that for us today. Reading from the Old Testament, Gia did that for us. Reading from the New Testament, Zid did Serving communion, Ken and Rory did. But we need to carry with us 
whether or not we have the opportunity, the spirit of service. That in serving in worship, we prepare our minds, our hearts, our actions for service in the coming week. I find it quite moving that the children of this congregation want to serve communion. Almost to the point that they get upset if they're not able, if they're not allowed to do that. But they seem to intuitively have grasped something that we have missed, and that is that we come together to serve each other. And in doing so, we are preparing ourselves for Monday through Saturday in which we will be serving others. But we've learned it here. We've primed it here. The pump of service has been primed here. We have learned that we come together to serve so that we might live lives of service. This leads to the second contrast, and that is, do we come here to be entertained or to engage? In connection with passivity versus service is whether or not we imagine we come to be entertained or to engage. If you see yourself here as being a matter of passivity, then entertainment is certainly what you're aiming for. I would imagine that you've not come to be engaged. Now, entertainment takes on various forms, uh, including gaining information. If we see ourselves essentially as brains on stick, that, that we are in fact primarily cognitive beings, thinking beings, then the service might in fact be seen as a place for gaining information, for gaining knowledge. Oh, Damon gave us some really good stuff today and I'm going to take that with me. Um, that, I think, can also be a form of entertainment. In the same way that food can both nourish and delight, oftentimes what happens here in the service can either, well, can both inform as well as entertain. But as we've seen, we are much more than merely thinking beings. We are to be engaged. As someone sings, because the Lord is my salvation, we engage, we respond, I will not fear. When someone reads the scripture, we are to be engaged as we listen carefully. And I would just say as a side note, and I've mentioned this to others, in the 40 years that I have been here, if there have been times when you would ask me, Damon, was there, did you ever have a particular sense of the Spirit of God being present? I would say, yes, it's when scripture is being read. As someone reads, we are to think, we are to engage. As we read the prayer of confession, we are to be engaged. As we sing, as we give, as we eat and drink, as you listen to the sermon, we are to be engaged. This leads to the final contrast, and that is formation versus information. As a teacher, my concern is formation. Think a moment. Is education primarily formative or an informative project? Without question, information is necessary for formation, but perhaps not to as large an extent as we might imagine. I, this is my last week of summer session coming up, and I told my students a couple of weeks ago in talking about this that um, it's one of my great regrets that I only have them for six weeks, and that in that short period of time it seems that I'm just giving them information when in reality I want to shape them and to form their thinking. That's certainly... M- true, if not more so, here in the congregation as I speak to you, that I'm not just here to give you information, things that you can write down, take notes on, but things that will in fact shape your lives. 
I submit to you that education is primarily a matter of formation, a, a task of shaping and creating a certain kind of people. You see, what makes people different is not what they know, but what they love. And so after attending here on a Sunday or a series of Sundays, you might in fact know more than you did before you started attending, but have your affections been affected? Have your desires been changed? Has, have your loves been shaped? Or have you merely acquired information? We come together not primarily to be informed, but to be formed, if you wish, reformed, reshaped into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then that goes back, did we come to be in, to engage or to be entertained? Did we come to sit here passively or to be actively involved in service? Is it primarily about our actions, our liturgy, the things that will shape our behavior, or is it about what we know? our view of the world. There can be a tendency to read our text today, Acts 2.42, in terms of knowledge. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. And so we would see that as, yes, information. The early church, 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost, and so now they need to be instructed, they need to be taught, they need to get this information. But if you continue reading in the verse, as we did, there's more to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I would submit that these are practices. This is formation rather than information. It prepared them. They would come together. They would eat together, pray together, commit themselves to the fellowship to be engaged, not entertained. And then they would go out into the world of darkness as bright and shining lights. I mentioned this last week from Robert Taft, who has written on liturgy. The purpose of Christian liturgy is to express in a ritual moment, for us the ritual hour, if you wish, that which should be the basic stance of every moment of our lives. What we do here is to shape what we will do the rest of the week. And then we come back next Sunday and do it again. Because in the process, the various liturgies have bombarded us and we've sort of gotten out of whack. We have forgotten Habits are developed by repetition. And so we come back and we do it again. And then the following Sunday, by God's grace, we do it again. And we learn what it means to be God's people in this world. This is what the early church did. This is what we see. And by God's grace, may it be true of us as well. Let's pray together. Our Father we confess that we are in the habit of coming to church. But we may have failed to see the significance of what we do. Yes, we we admit, we confess that we come together to worship you. But we don't, for some reason, imagine that it is supposed to change our lives and our thinking, our actions. Help us to see, by your Spirit, that you have called us You are reshaping us as a congregation, as individuals, but as a congregation. And so we gather to worship, to sing, to be reminded over and over again. Because we certainly see things outside the church over and over again. We are bombarded by advertising. 
the call to be entertained, the call to be passive, not engaged, to be some sort of couch potatoes. And we bring that mentality to church. By your Spirit, help us to see that you've called us to be servants. And here together we learn service by serving one another. And you've not called us to be passive. We are not here primarily or as on this planet to be entertained, but to engage with your creation. And while we learn things, these things are to shape how we live, who we are, our affections, our desires, and our loves. Father, by your grace, I have given my life to teaching. Help us to see that information is not the end goal in sight, but rather formation, that we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. May your spirit cause us to think on these things, and more than that, to put them into practice. Because we're not just to be thinkers. We're not just thinkers. We are, in fact, those who love, who have desires. And may our lives, our desires, be reshaped by your grace and by your spirit. Thank you for bringing us together today. Again, we give thanks for our brother Andrew Brunson, who has been released from prison. Help him as he regains the weight he has lost Give him comfort, peace of mind. We ask that by your grace he would be allowed to leave the country. May we have a sense of your presence with us in the coming days as we walk through this world. May we have a sense that your spirit is working in our lives. May he go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.